Brothers and sisters, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 24. We're going to continue our study in Isaiah this morning. I'm so proud of you for the way that you've managed, at least I hope you have, haven't seen you do it, but the way that I hope that you've managed to stick with me all the way through this last section. Isaiah 1 through 12 is primarily focused on one nation, that is the nation of Israel, more specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. Focuses on their sin and unbelief, specifically targeting Jerusalem, and yet how God in His grace is going to save for Himself a remnant. And in that remnant, He is going to establish for Himself a new city, a new Jerusalem, set on a holy hill, Mount Zion. And so it is a mixture of both judgment and of mercy. In fact, the theme is really mercy through judgment, but now beginning in verse thir- in chapter 13, rather, all the way through chapter 23, which is where we spent the last couple of months. God expands Isaiah's vision, gives him a, a panoramic view of what he's doing in the world. And he takes the focus off of one particular nation and he expands it to here's what I'm doing to all of the other surrounding nations according to my providence and how I am fulfilling my purposes in them and through them. And it's been one oracle of doom after another. You say, this is a really depressing church. You're just talking about wrath and judgment every single week. Well, I think somewhere in there we've seen sprinkled every single oracle. There has, in fact, been glimpses of mercy, glimpses of grace. Even in all of these oracles of doom, and yet what we're going to see, beginning in chapter 24 through 27, is all of the doom and gloom is going to begin to recede into the background. And in the foreground, what we're going to see is the white-hot glory and grace of God and what he will be accomplishing for his people at the end of the age. A few things that we might want to take away, though, as we just consider. We've mentioned some of these before. You say, why did we spend such a long time, 10 chapters in all, chapter 13 all the way to chapter 23, going through one oracle of judgment after another? Why didn't we just do it all at once? Why didn't we just skip over it? That's what most of you do in your Bible reading plans when you reach this part of your Bible. Why do we spend it? Well, number one, God in His wisdom has organized His Word in this way. That up to this point, He has focused intentionally more so on God's justice and His judgments than He has on His mercy. And we need to be able to stop for just a moment and go, why is that the case? What is God doing? What does He want us to know about who He is and what He's doing in the world? What we need to do is resist the urge to go, ooh, don't like that, don't like that, let's go quick. Let's move on past this. As if this is a a less desirable thing to know and understand about God than perhaps His mercy and His grace. So it is true, Martin Luther said, that God's judgment is His strange activity, whereas mercy is the activity that that His heart is most inclined to. It's his strange doings, and that's right. And we see all of this strangeness, this judgment, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God receding into the forefront is the mercy and the grace of God. 
Beginning in chapter 24 all the way through 27, it's going to be treated like a single poetic unit. In chapter 24, what we're going to see in the first six verses is prose, and then in verse 7 all the way through verse 23, we're going to see songs being sung, and those songs are going to continue on into chapter 25 and 26 and 27. In fact, if you just look at some of the headings that perhaps the editors of your Bible have put in, I've got an ESV, this is just what it says. We're beginning here with the judgment on the whole earth, but then 25, that God will swallow up death forever. Chapter 26, we see that, that the people of God are gonna be kept in perfect peace. In verse chapter 27, rather, we see the redemption of Israel. So nothing but glory, sweet gospel grace, Coming up in the next few chapters, we get to focus on that. I'm looking forward to it. But the subject of chapter 24, this is how we got to get where we're going, is really the tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. We see the city of man, for instance, referenced in verse 10 and verse 12, and we see in verse 23, the city of God, that is Zion, being mentioned. One is going to be destroyed, another is going to be established. One will be judged, and another one will be saved. Beginning here in chapter 24, all the way through 27, this section, this poetic unit, is eschatological. Eschatology. It's a study of the last things, what's going to happen at the end of the age. These are pointing to what God is going to do when He brings all of history to its end. They're eschatological. They are, in fact, analogous to what we're going to see in Revelation 18 to 21. That's the very end of your Bible. So you say, how does the whole story end? That's Revelation 18 to 21. Isaiah is talking about the same thing. So if you're one of those people that likes to wiki the plot of a movie before you watch the movie, or you're one of those who likes to read the end of the novel before you read the novel, then essentially what Isaiah is doing is giving you your spoilers. This is what's going to happen. You don't even have to read to the end of the book. It's just going to say the same thing. Though I would encourage you to, to do that. I'm not trying to discourage you from reading to the end of the book. You should do that. But Isaiah is essentially saying the same thing. Then what we're going to see here is the city of man in chapter 24 is analogous to Babylon and the city of God is analogous to Zion. You remember when we studied over Advent... Revelation 18, 19, 20, and 21, that Babylon was not merely a city, geographically speaking, but it was, it was symbolic of the whole of, whole of humanity that was set against God, of human culture and society that ultimately is opposing God as gospel and His people. Whereas Zion is the dwelling place of God with His people. And when you get to the end of Revelation, you see Babylon has been defeated and the last character standing on the stage of history is the church. It's Zion. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new Jerusalem. Dwelling with God forever. Well, what we're seeing in Isaiah 24 is that final judgment on the day of the Lord of the whole earth that gives way to the establishment and the expansion of Zion. So really, 24 to 27 could all be one sermon. I'm not going to do that to you. We're just going to do 24. But really, the next three or four weeks should all be considered one ongoing sermon. Like Star Wars, episode 4, 5, and 6, or 1, 2, whatever. 
What we're gonna see in chapter 24 is two things in the first 13 verses. We're gonna see that God judges the sinful city. But then in verses 17 to 23, God establishes the holy city. That God judges the sinful city and God establishes the holy city. And in both of these points, we're gonna see one idea, one big idea, this is my sermon in a sentence, that is that the sinful city of man will be judged for good and the city of God will be established forever. The sinful city of man will be judged for good and the city of God will be established forever. We're going to see that God judges the sinful city, verses 1 through 13, that God establishes the holy city, verses 17 to 23, and then we're going to see in verses 14 and 16 an interlude of praising God for his judgments by the elect. Let's begin at the very beginning, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Isaiah begins with this phrase, Behold the Lord, because we are to hear and believe God's word so that we might see God's hand in his judgments. That you cannot see God's hand apart from the lenses of God's word. That the word of God is what interprets the hand of God in history. So Isaiah is saying, here's the word of the Lord. Behold, pay attention, wake up, open your eyes so that you might see what he's doing. He says, behold the Lord. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to empty the earth. The whole chapter is going to be about the earth. It's not going to be about individual nations. That's what we've seen. One oracle after another, beginning in chapter 13 all the way to 23. But now we're expanding to the whole earth, to all of humanity. Not merely Egypt, not merely Assyria, not merely uh, Babylon, but it's the whole earth. In fact, that phrase, the earth, is going to be repeated 18 times over the course of this chapter, just in case there's any confusion about who the subjects are. It's the earth. It's the whole earth. It's all of humanity at the end of the age. He says he's going to empty the earth. He's going to make it desolate. He's going to twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Literally, that phrase, twisted surface, means to distort its face. If you wanted to put it in today's parlance, if you wanted to put it in Urban Dictionary, it might say, God's going to completely rearrange its face. What we might say to somebody, if we were going to get in a fight with them, listen, because of what you've done to me, listen, if you're going to continue to make me mad, I'm going to rearrange your face. That's exactly what God is saying. I'm going to rearrange your face. The devastation is going to be so complete. It is going to be so total, so comprehensive, that you won't even be able to recognize their face. The face of the earth. In fact, it's going to be so unrecognizable that things that seem to be normal in the ways that we normally think society at large is going to be completely turned on its head and that's exactly what we see in verse 2. That it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. 
As with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. We see all the major aspects of human society, of religious and domestic and economic, all being addressed. And in this verse, what we see is the entire world being turned upside down without exception. That God's judgment shows no partiality. That perhaps there might be some that think that they have a religious leg up or they think that because of their privileged place in society that they have a leg up over those who have a less privileged place in society or perhaps those who have many resources, the buyer and the lender and the creditor have a leg up on the seller and the borrower and the debtor but God says no, my judgment shows no partiality, all will come under my judgment at the end of the age and that's exactly what we see in Revelation 20. That John says that he sees all of the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. God is going to clean out the earth like an old shed, like a she shed. That's what we see here in verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty. It's going to be utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. Notice that this isn't guesswork for Isaiah. He's not like a weatherman, considering the conditions and then trying to make his best educated guess, knowing the winds could change at any moment. This judgment that he speaks of here is sure. It is ironclad. It is as immutable as God himself is immutable. That is unchangeable because God himself has spoken it. That the Lord has spoken this word. This isn't my word, Isaiah says. I'm not just making this up. Say, well, Isaiah, you're always just so doom and gloom. You need to look up on the bright side once in a while. Why you always got to be so depressing? Listen, it's not my word that I'm speaking. This is the word of the Lord that I'm speaking. I'm just the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. I'm just telling you what he told me to tell you. This is what he's going to do. And the purposes of God are unchanging. And the word that I give you will not change. This is what's going to happen. That's why in verses 4 through 13, Isaiah doesn't sing a song of naive optimism. He doesn't have a high view of human nature and a low view of God. He doesn't have a high view of human progress through technology over the ages that somehow will find the right political system or the right artificial intelligence or the right whatever to advance society beyond its current ills. He doesn't look at it and go, really, we just need a little bit more love and then everything will be fine. No, Isaiah goes immediately into a lament because he knows the nature of humanity and of what awaits them in the judgment of God. He doesn't sing a song of naive optimism, crossing his fingers and hoping for the best. God has spoken. His judgments are sure. And the day of the Lord is coming as we saw in, verse 13, in chapter 13. It is coming, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. And so Isaiah laments. Read along with me, beginning in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants for they've transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, 
a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, and the vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. And there's an outcry in the streets for the lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten. As at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Isaiah describes the earth in verse 4 as withering. You see that there? It is withering under the heat of God's judgment like the withering of a wadded up piece of paper used to start a fire in your fireplace. What will be the world's response as they wither away under the judgment of God? Verse 4, mourning and languishing. We see that again in verse 7, mourning and languishing. The great Texas songwriter, Robert Earl Keene, said, the road goes on forever and the party never ends. But in verse 7 and following, we see that that the world has reached the end of its road and in fact, the party has ended. Look at this. Did you notice the emphasis on wine? It's mentioned three times in these handful of verses, 7 through 11. In the Bible, wine is often used as a sign of blessing and of prosperity. That's why when you get to Genesis 49 and they give the promise of the Lion of Judah, the king who has come, that his robes are going to be dripping with the blood of grapes, with wine. Why? Because he's going to bring prosperity with him. That's why the first miracle that Jesus performed in his public ministry was the turning of water into wine. Prosperity had come. It had previously gone dry, but now he's brought something new. Well, here, there is no wine. There is no prosperity. There is no blessing. It will all be absent. All that will be left, he says in verse 12, is desolation, is ruin. It is barren like an olive tree or a grapevine after they've been harvested. And then the question comes, why does the entire earth then end in such a lamentable way? Isaiah tells us in verses 4 through 6, that the earth mourns and withers, it languishes and withers, the highest people on the earth languish, the earth is defiled under its inhabitants for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. Its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. Verse five If you have an ESV, my translation, that's what I have here, it says the earth lies defiled. Other translations, perhaps the one that you have, says the earth is polluted. 
It may even be a better translation here. That the word describes something that was once good and pure and life-giving being defiled and producing death. So if you're into all of those Netflix documentaries about big industry dumping bunches of chemicals into water, poisoning cities and wildlife and so on and so forth, it's a similar image that Isaiah is painting here. That the whole earth has become toxic. Like industries poisoning towns by dumping toxic chemicals into a river. It's why Isaiah uses the same word here in verse 5 for pollution that's used in Numbers 35, 33 when God warns Israel against, quote, polluting the land with its injustice. Or in Jeremiah 3 when Jeremiah calls out Israel for polluting the land with idolatry. You have poisoned the well, they're saying. So God is concerned with pollution. Oh no, Pastor Jeff is a hippie. He's a tree hugger. Well, he is concerned with pollution. And he is concerned with the earth. Make no doubt about it. In that respect, I do think that we're called to be good stewards of the physical creation. I don't think that we look at the earth like the Titanic sinking and that we just jump ship not even worth rearranging the chairs, that we should steward that which God has given us, all the more as those who have been redeemed by him. But that's really not what Isaiah is concerned with. He's not concerned with what Al Gore and Greta Thunberg are worried about when he's talking about polluting the earth. No, the kind of pollution that God's concerned with here is an ultimately industrial or environmental, it's spiritual. Why will every human on earth be judged by God? Because humanity has polluted the earth. How has humanity polluted the earth? Isaiah tells us in the second half of verse 5. They've done three things. They've transgressed the laws. They have violated the statutes. They have broken the everlasting covenant. First, we notice that every person everywhere, Isaiah says, has transgressed laws. What laws? What laws are you talking about? Laws of the land? No, that's not what we're talking about. Talking about God's law. You say, well, I thought that God's law was only given to Israel. How is it that the law given to Israel can be something that all nations everywhere and all people at all times can break? In fact, if the law was given to Moses at Sinai after Israel had been redeemed from Egypt, what about all those people that came before that? Where's the law on that? We spent a whole sermon on that, but let me just give you one key text in your Bible to help you understand what Paul is talking about. Put your finger there in Isaiah 24, and I want you to go to your right to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're considering this idea that every person everywhere has transgressed laws. We're in the book of Romans, that's in the New Testament. If you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're in the Gospels, that's great. Keep going to your right a little bit. You're going to pass the book of Acts. Then you'll land in Romans. If you get 1 Corinthians, other names of cities, go back to your left, we're in Romans. Chapter 2. 
Beginning in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, who's he talking about? He's talking about all those who are not of Israel, physical Israel, who are not Jews, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, that is non-Jews, who do not have the law, that is the Mosaic law, when they do by nature what the law requires, well, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying in Romans 2 is that, yes, Israel may have been given the law through Moses, but that law is just a written expression of the law that has been written on every man's heart, beginning with Adam to the end of the age. And that law written on the hearts of every human everywhere that gives witness and testimony to God that in Romans 1 that enables us to know God and yet in sin suppress the knowledge of God. That every person everywhere has not only rejected the knowledge of God, but they have rejected obedience to God in their consciences. Even on the most fundamental levels of what it looks like, of right and wrong, of moral and immoral, of being called to worship something greater than themselves, and of treating others better than themselves. They have fundamentally broken that law. And that goes not back to Sinai, but that goes all the way back to Adam. So what Paul is trying to do is go, well, how can you count guilty those who don't have the written law given to Israel if the law is what reveals sin? If they don't have the law, then they can't be counted as sinners. Paul says, no, they have had the law. All men everywhere at all times have had the law on their hearts by virtue of being made in the image of God and coming from Adam himself. And every man everywhere is guilty. Go back to Isaiah 24. Not only has every person everywhere transgressed laws, those laws written on their hearts, but secondly, every person everywhere has violated statutes. That word violated there. In verse 5, it's this idea of moving or sweeping away, this idea of changing. But yeah, we, kind of, we know what is right, but we don't really want to do it. We know God's laws, but we don't really think that fits our lives really well, so we're going to change it, adjust it, edit it, redact it. We're going to redefine them. We're going to take those things that God calls good and we're going to call them evil. And we're going to take the things that God calls evil and we're going to call them good. We are not just going to deny the law of God. We're going to change it. And we're going to anoint our own law with the blessing of God. This is what God really wants. Is there anything is this seen any more clearly in any other aspect of our own culture today than in the subject of marriage and sexuality? 
of attributing to God laws that do not in fact belong to God, of saying something pleases God that does not in fact please God. That is exactly the sense of what Isaiah is saying here, that they've not only transgressed, passed over the laws, crossed those lines, but they have edited it and smudged it in such a way to justify their rebellion against God as if it actually pleases God. They're changing the statutes. But then he says, thirdly, not only is every person everywhere transgressed laws, not only has every person everywhere violated statutes, but every person everywhere has broken the everlasting covenant. What is Isaiah talking about? When you open your Bible, it's really important for you to understand that the basic framework, the spine and the skeleton of the Bible is covenantal in nature. That the whole Bible from the beginning to the end, how it all fits together, how we understand what God has been doing in history as He's moved all things to the coming of His Son and the consummation of all things at His return is all understood through the lens of covenant. Here, Isaiah is saying that all people everywhere exist in covenant with God and they have broken that covenant. Well, where do we find that in the Bible? Is it talking about the Noahic covenant? That's referred to as an everlasting covenant. But that covenant, the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah was in fact made with all people everywhere, but it was not a conditional covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. Therefore, it's a covenant that can't be broken by humanity. God alone will fulfill the conditions of that covenant, so it can't be talking about that one. Well, Abraham's covenant was also referred to as an everlasting covenant. Maybe that's what they're talking about. Well, no, it can't be talking about that either because the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant were conditions that were given to Abraham's physical offspring in particular, not to all humanity everywhere. The conditions being that you need to be circumcised and if you're not, you're going to be cut off. You need to obey God and the covenant sign or you're going to be removed from his covenant community. Those were the conditions. But that was given to Abraham's physical descendants, not to everybody everywhere. Even the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses was referred to as an everlasting covenant, but that covenant wasn't with all nations. It was with one particular nation, that is the nation of Israel. So what covenant then, if it's not the Noahic Covenant, and it's not the Abrahamic Covenant, and it's not the Mosaic Covenant, and it's also not the Davidic Covenant, because that's talking about a king for the Davidic throne coming that will have an everlasting throne, then what is he talking about? What covenant is he referring to? if not one of those. What Isaiah is referring to is what theologians refer to as the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. Of the law being written on the heart of all men. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis. That when God created Adam, God had such life, such intra-Trinitarian enjoyment of himself that his desire was now to enter into fellowship with his creation. 
And in so doing, God is a God that therefore, because of his unchangeable and immutable and righteous character, makes commitments and keeps commitments. That's why he refers to himself more than 6,000 times in the Bible as Yahweh, as Jehovah, as a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. I'm a God who makes promises and keeps promises. I'm a God that enters into relationship with my people, and I do so through covenant. And that's exactly what he did with Adam in the garden. You say, well, wait a minute. Genesis 1 and 2 never mentions the word covenant. There's not any covenant there. Well, actually, when you go to Hosea 8, 6, Hosea is rebuking Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness, and he tells them that your covenant breaking is just like the breaking of an even greater covenant breaking, that is the breaking of the covenant that God made with Adam. So even Hosea recognizes that there was a covenant that God had made because all of God's relationship with humanity has to be mediated by covenant. He is the sovereign. He sets the terms. We come into that covenant relationship on the basis of the terms that God as king himself has created. We don't get to negotiate. He is the sovereign. We are not. And the same was true with Adam. So when God creates Adam in the garden... He creates him for relationship and he does so in the context of a covenant. And every covenant in the Bible is a committed relationship that has stipulations and in some instances when it's conditional has consequences or curses. And the same thing is true in Genesis. That when God created Adam, not only had he written his law on his heart having been made in the image of God, but he also gave him his law in the form of an expressed command in Genesis 2. Do you remember what it is? Every tree in the garden is yours. You can eat from it freely, but you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you do, dying, you will die. You will die two deaths. Not just physically, though that's true. You will also die spiritually. God had entered into a covenant with Adam. Adam was therefore to be faithful to the covenant conditions. You need to obey me. You can eat freely of everything, but you can't eat that. If you eat that, the covenant curses are going to fall upon you. Death is going to come. And that's exactly what happened. That if Adam would have endured and obeyed God, if he would have, in the, in the terms of Revelation 21, if he would have been an overcomer, then he would have had access to the tree of the knowledge of good and or the access to the tree of life, and he would have lived forever in blessed communion with God. But Adam didn't overcome. He gave in to temptation. And he disobeyed God in the covenant conditions. And as a result, death spread. In fact, when you get to Genesis chapter 5, there's one phrase that you see repeated over and over and over and over again, emphasizing that the curse had in fact spread, not just from Adam and to Adam, but to all that come from Adam, and it's, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and so it's been. Ever since, God cursed the earth because of Adam's sin. That God had had a covenant with Adam. Adam had broken that covenant. And because Adam was a representative of all of humanity, 
All men everywhere are now counted as covenant breakers. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very fair. I didn't get my shot. I'm guilty just by virtue of, of being related to Adam. Yeah, you are. Well, I think that's a little bit unfair. Well, let me ask you a question. If you were, given, if you were put in the garden, a perfect paradise, without any sin nature whatsoever, do you think you would have fared any better? The reality is, is that in covenant relationships, God always has a head of the covenant. Adam was the head of this covenant. Noah is the head of a covenant. Abraham is the head of a covenant. David is the head of a covenant. Moses is the head of covenant. They're the ones that are representative of the people as a whole. And Adam is representative of all people everywhere, all those who would come from him of his offspring. He is what theologians call the federal head. He is the representative of all of humanity. So when Adam jumped off sides... The whole team got penalized. That's the way that it works. But God didn't leave it there. Because in Genesis 3, even in cursing the creation because of sin, he made another covenant. What theologians refer to as the covenant of grace. He says, from the seed of the woman is going to come a serpent-crushing offspring. And the whole Bible is a story of that seed being revealed little by little, one covenant at a time, until you get to the new covenant, the New Testament, where all of a sudden that covenant of grace is full bloom. And that all of God's people from Genesis 3 onward who have trusted in God, have been declared righteous by faith by God, who have been counted among God's people, not physical Israel, but of those who have, who have been regenerated by the grace of God to believe and hope and trust in God. They are all part of that covenant of grace and that covenant of grace therefore comes into full fruition, is fully revealed in the new covenant that is ratified at Christ and His coming. So the whole Bible is not just a story of a seed, but the whole Bible is essentially the story of two covenants. It's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. of a first Adam and a second Adam. That's how the Apostle Paul understands the whole Bible. Once again, keep your finger here in, Revelation, or in Isaiah 24, and I want you to go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're considering this idea that all people everywhere are covenant breakers and have been cursed as a result of that covenant being broken. That curse is spread to all of humanity and of all of the world because we are all in Adam. But that God has also made a covenant of grace fulfilled in Christ and that whereas death has come into the world through one Adam, life comes through another. And so in a sense, what Paul's gonna say in Romans chapter five is that all of humanity hangs on the belt of one or two Adams. Either the first Adam or the second Adam, either in the covenant of works and the curses therein, or the covenant of grace fulfilled by Christ. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's the man that we're talking about? It's Adam. And death 
through sin. That's exactly what God said would happen if Adam violated the covenant conditions. If you disobey, death. And death is spread through sin. And so death spread to all men. How many men? All men. Just some men? No, all men. Because all sinned. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought Adam sinned. His sin's just imputed. Is it, really, is it our sin? Yes, because we inherited Adam's DNA. Adam, Genesis 1, was created in God's image, but then when you get to Genesis 5, you see that those who come from Adam are made in Adam's image. There's a new spiritual DNA that is imparted. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are by nature children of wrath, doing the things that come naturally to us, just like the rest of the world, the whole world is wrapped up in this, hanging on the belt of the first Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What's he talking about? I thought you said that the law was given. No, he's talking about the Mosaic law here. Later on in Romans, he's going to say the law was given so that transgressions might increase. Is that so you might become more sinful? Well, no, it's so that the, the legal obligations of our sin would be more finely parsed out, but not because man is more sinful due to the law. How do we know that the law was given and that all men were in rebellion against God, that sin had in fact spread to all men even though the law hadn't been given. And the answer in verse 14 is because everybody was dying. That death reigned from Adam to Moses. That is before the giving of the law. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one to come. But he says the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, oh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Is Paul making this point clear? Adam represents all of humanity. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam broke covenant, we all broke covenant because all of us are in Adam. We need a new Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second and better Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to a condemnation for all men, how many men? All men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so now by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you understand what Paul's saying? All of humanity essentially exists in two camps, in Adam or in Christ. Cursed under the covenant of works, given to Adam in the garden, or blessed. In a new covenant, the covenant of grace in Christ. There's no third camp. 
There's no middle way. Isaiah understood this. Go back to Isaiah 24. He says, all have transgressed laws, all have violated statutes, all have broken the everlasting covenant. And that's why verse 6, a curse devours the earth. See also Genesis 3. Its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Both imputed guilt, guilt that we gain from Adam, and guilt that we have brought on ourselves by, by virtue of sinning as Adam sinned. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and only a few are left. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. A first Adam and a second Adam. That's your whole Bible. It's the story of two Adams. The story of two covenants. Of one that's been broken and one who came and kept it perfectly so that covenant breakers like you and me might be counted as covenant keepers because the covenant maker became a man so that he might be a covenant keeper unlike the first Adam so the covenant breakers like us could have eternal life. Friend, if you're watching today, I hope you know that if you have not yet trusted in Christ, what Isaiah says here is true of you. You are not in Christ, you are in Adam. God views you as one who has broken his covenant and yet he has made a way in Christ for you not to be cursed according to the breaking of a covenant that is true of all humanity everywhere, but to enjoy all of the blessings that come from the covenant being kept perfectly on your behalf in Christ Jesus. That if you trust in him, you will receive not only forgiveness of sins and a righteous standing before God, but an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, stored up in heaven for you, eternal life, not death. That Christ in your place, should you repent and trust in him, will fulfill all of the conditions of the covenant that was violated and he will exhaust every ounce of the curse for you. So that what we see in this first half of Isaiah 24 would not be true of you. That you would not be counted among the earth that mourns and withers and languishes, but rather you would be counted, in verse 6, among the few men who are left. A faithful remnant. Saved by God according to His mercy. A faithful remnant that in verse 14 praises God for his mercy through judgment. Look at this. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, the east gives glory to the Lord and the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear the songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. That word they at the beginning of verse 14, I take that to be referring to those few men who are left. The few olives on the tree and the grapes in the vine. Those who have passed through judgment according to the mercy of God because of their faith in him and his promises. And I want you to notice in these handful of verses here, 14, 15, and the beginning of 16, that the people of God praising God includes not just one nation, but it includes all nations from the east and to the west, from the ends of the earth. All of God's promises 
that God gave in that covenant of grace revealed further in Abraham that you will be a blessing to all nations is coming true and it all comes true ultimately in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the one who has revealed the perfect promises of God and fulfilled them in his life and his curse-exhausting death. So here we see that men and women from all nations Saved by God, according to His mercy, those who are members of the covenant of grace, no longer the covenant of works, no longer cursed, but now blessed, are praising God for saving them through judgment, and they are singing songs about His majesty, about His glory, and about His righteousness. This is exactly what we see in Revelation 19. John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Who's the multitude? I think it's the multitude that Isaiah sees here. And what are they singing? They're crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. Have you stopped to think that you will praise God not only for His normal activity that is of mercy and of saving sinners, but also in His activity in judging? That strange activity. All of it will serve to exalt His glory. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. His judgments are true and just. Those songs that we see here in these handful of verses are the songs that are going to be sung at the end of the age by that heavenly chorus who will see with clear eyes all that God has been doing through human history to bring all things to their appointed end in Christ and will exalt Him for His great mercy to them through judgment that they, of all people, Sinners, descended from Adam, would be counted members of the covenant of grace and of his kingdom. But notice here as we run to the end of the chapter that the songs of praise quickly turn again to lament. That while the future looks bright for God's people, that's clear in verses 14 and 15. Isaiah is immediately sobered by the reality of judgment to come. Look at verse 16. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me for the traitors have betrayed with betrayal. The traitors have betrayed. Terror in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken and the earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it and it falls and it will not rise again. And on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth and they will gather together as prisoners in a pit that will be shut up in a prison and after many days will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and His glory will be before His elders. Isaiah says, Woe is me. For as glorious as this future is for the true Israel, the elect of God, the path between here and there is a terrifying path. 
And his judgments are terrifying judgments. And he thinks that those to whom God has been so exceedingly gracious, his own nation, Judah, and giving them the law and giving them the sacrifices and giving them all of these shadows that point to the substance that is Christ. Oh, God has been so gracious to you and yet you have continued to reject him. And Isaiah says, oh, woe is me. For the song that the elect is singing will not be your song at the end of the age. And he mourns. Because he knows in verse 17 that God has laid his trap and nobody will escape. He knows in verse 18 and 19 that if they run, they'll fall into a pit. And if they climb out of the pit, they're going to get caught in the snare. I'm on Twitter. Does that have to do with the judgment of God? Though perhaps it does. I'm on Twitter and one of my favorite follows is, I love accounts that have to do with nature. Nature is fierce. Nature is whatever. And it just gives short videos of, you know, stuff that happens in nature. And there was one video that I watched recently of a water buffalo, or whatever it was, it was a big desert cow, a water buffalo standing on the edge of the water. And right up on the bank, is an army of hyenas. There's like a dozen of them waiting for him to come out of the water. And behind him in the water was a crocodile. And he's just standing there. And the caption said, pick your poison. Either way, you know that buffalo's going down. And he just stood there looking at the hyenas and eventually the crocodile got him and dragged him into the water and and then you like it and retweet it and whatever. But it's an apt illustration for what we see here in verse 17 and 18. Listen, you've got crocodiles in the water and you've got hyenas on the shore. Pick your poison, but either way, you will not escape. No one will escape. And then his vision in verse 21 and 22 expands from the whole earth to include even the host in heaven. The Apostle Paul writes that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are the very ones that Christ, according to Colossians 2, has disarmed by his death on a cross. Isaiah sees here, I think, in verse 22, the judgment of Satan and of every spiritual force and of every antichrist on earth that has raised themselves up and waged war against Christ and his gospel and his church. And all of them will come to an end. And all that will be left at the end of history, in verse 23, will be the Lord of hosts of armies. The Lord of armies reigning over his redeemed covenant people and the new creation on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Enemies have been defeated. Sin has been done away with. Death has been swallowed up. The people of God dwelling with the glory of God forever. And that is what chapter 25 and 26 and 27 is all about. You've got to get through verse 24, chapter 24 to get to the rest. That we praise God for his judgments. We see the city of God established. 
And now in the next three chapters of the next few weeks, we're going to see the city of God expanded. And all of the sad things in the world coming untrue in Christ. The better Adam. The one who has ratified a covenant of grace and will bring it to its completion at the end of the age. We'll pick up in chapter 25 next week. Pray with me.